This is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group. I'm Martin Lote, curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, you'll listen in to a conversation between two senior people at the sharp end of business change and transformation, with their permission, of course. Our two guests will chat and question each other as equals, exploring industry topics and stories from their careers. Hopefully, they'll dig up some tasty morsels for us to chew on. In this special edition of the Dog and Bone podcast, I'm joined in the studio by two news brand bosses who in different ways are pioneering a path to a sustainable future for quality journalism and authoritative comment. This in a world where many of their traditional media rivals are suffering steep audience and revenue declines. Each has had a different path to the top. John Ridding was a journalist and editor of the FT in Asia before becoming CEO of the FT. David Pemsel was a marketing director at ITV and then commercial chief of The Guardian before himself becoming its CEO. Gentlemen, welcome. Can I start with you, David? Um, it's quite well known that The Guardian are working on a, through a three-year plan, which I've heard you talk about a few times before. I think you're coming towards the end of that. How's that working in terms of the sustainable future for Guardian quality journalism? Yes, so in 2015, uh, we, we sort of laid that Kath Viner was appointed as editor-in-chief uh, and I was uh, made chief, eje- chief executive of the Guardian Media Group and we laid down a th- three-year plan uh, which concludes, uh, concludes in March next year. Uh, there were kind of four components of that. One was around how we built deeper relationships with our readers. The second was how do we encourage our readers to make a greater contribution. The third one was around sort of ensuring we understood the realities of the advertising market. And the fourth was uh, both our culture and agility, but also um, a consideration of cost. And um, to be frank, it it has been a very tough uh, and very challenging period from 2015. Um, But I'm delighted to say that every number that we've set out, whether it be from the diversification away from advertising towards our readers or more digital revenue than print, uh, or indeed a cost base, which will we plan to be at an operating level at break even next March. Uh, all of those numbers remain on track. Um, as John, I'm sure, will also say throughout the course of this, one would never dare predict longer than a quarter. Uh, and so we conclude in March. So at the moment, our numbers suggest uh, we can see break even, uh, but there's always uh, there's always challenges ahead. Just tell us a little bit about the numbers, particularly the um, the membership model, which uh, you introduced to some great fanfare. Yeah, so I mean the the, the outline number, which all of our uh, competitors and and uh, a peer set, including the FT, uh, certainly commented on our cash position at the time. Uh, we were forecast in 2015 to be losing nearly 18 million in the EBITDA level and potentially over 100 million in a total cash outflow. We had 700 million left in the bank, and uh, that evidently and clearly is not a, a sustainable position. Uh, that that seventy million was reduced to roughly sort of fifty seven. That reduced to thirty eight mm. to nineteen last year, and obviously to to zero uh, in, in March if everything works. And you know, to that second pillar of encouraging readers to make a greater contribution, you know, we are owned by a trust. There's no proprietor. There's no shareholders. And we really started to think about what does it mean to be a Guardian reader and be part of our global community. You know, in excess of 176 million browsers uh, every month, 10 million regulars, that's a hugely rich pool of readers of whom to um, collaborate with. Uh, And what we simply did, though there was lots of analysis behind it, we started to test the concept of simply asking them. And 
over the period, we, we I think we started this journey at sort of roughly 12,000 people or so who described themselves as members. And to date, we now have 770,000 uh, reoccurring relationships, which is a combination of subscriptions, paid for app and reoccurring contributors. And then to date, since April uh, 16, we've had 600,000 people make one-off contributions. Uh, so we announced recently in aggregate that was a, a million people have made some kind of one-off or reoccurring payment. And I think we should all be delighted for almost from a societal point of view that there are millions of people out there who are prepared to commit and support quality independent journalism. John, what's your take on that? The, the numbers, you're on your way to a, a million subscribers, aren't you? Yeah, so it is, it's been a long haul. Uh, David's right, a quarter is a long time in this industry. Things change fundamentally and quickly. Some, longers feel, some quarters feel uh, a lot longer than others. Um, and certainly at the moment with the uh, the uncertainty around the whole Brexit process is definitely raising issues in business land. Um, we love advertising, um, but it's a fickle friend. It's up and down. It's volatile. It's the first thing that changes. When there's a change in the business landscape and, and business confidence, and sorry, during my, my tenure, I've seen some pretty vicious um, slowdowns in advertising. It's a bit like swimming over the reef. I do a lot of snorkeling and diving, and you have that feeling when you go over the edge that it just stops, and nobody likes that feeling. So... <laughs> You know, we were very keen to move to a much more stable, long-term um, business model. And while so much has changed, you know, from digital to mobile to audio to video, the whole production um, and the nature, actually, of how news is produced has changed fundamentally and the business around it. Uh, we've had a couple of constants through this, through this um, uh, transformation. One is a fundamental um, confidence and belief in the value of the wonderful journalism that the FT journalists produce. And we've always felt from the get-go that uh, readers should be uh, willing to pay for that. And when we started charging online for, for FT journalism sort of 12, 13 years ago, when we were pioneers in those days, and it was very lonely. In fact, we got a lot of flack and a lot of criticism for daring to charge for uh, journalism online, certainly in the US and certainly on the West Coast of the US. The mantra was, the internet wants to be free which was always weird um, because the internet actually doesn't want anything. It's a channel. Um, and if you believe that you're producing quality stuff then and readers are willing to pay for it, then they should um, or can. There's different ways of going about that. You know, David's team has a different model. But fundamentally, if you believe that what you're doing uh, is valuable, there are revenues to be had. And it's in some respects a much more direct approach to the reader. Um, as I say, we love advertising, but I think the great Henry Luce put it that, you know, the primary relationship of any publisher should be with the reader, and we felt that. So we've had that one constant through all the change is this confidence in charging for journalism, a reasonable price. You know, we're not looking to profiteer here. This is to sustain the global newsroom and the quality of journalism that our readers expect. And I think the other thing that was quite helpful is having a, a North Star. And when you are in this period of incredible upheaval and I think few industries have seen the kind of upheaval that news media has had um, you know digital tech the social social media and search platforms fake news <laughs> like a perfect storm of stuff yeah. having something that an organization can pull together around is crucial so we decided it would be this north star of a million paying readers um, to be honest when we set this when I said let's make that our North Star. I think are confident now that we will do this next year ahead of schedule. Right, good. Um, I suppose I'm very interested now to turn a little bit to your respective um, journeys into the 
job. Um, sticking with you, John, um, you, you were a journalist and were running uh, FT in Asia, I believe, before taking on the role as CEO. Talk a little bit about what it's like to go from being a, a journalist and one of the people that you now currently employ to, to the top job. Was that an easy transition to make or not? Well, I'd loved journalism. And one of the great things about the FT is you get to have um, a range of journalistic experiences. So I was in London, I was in Paris, I was in South Korea. Uh, I was romping around Hong Kong and, and mainland China. And the stories were fantastic. It's a, it's a wonderful experience. It's tough. You, you know, um, people think about the, the glamour side of journalism, but it's hard work. Um, and you don't really have control over your diary, your life at all, because anything can happen anytime. And uh, and it does, <laughs> you know, it's sort of, but I think ultimately, you know, I, I um, felt that maybe some of my um, aptitudes and skills were, were maybe better suited for management and organization. And, you know, the call came from, um, from Pearson, who owned us at the time, whether I felt like moving over the, jumping over the fence, and it's actually, it's a very high wall. I mean, I think um, we have you know, this very clear distinction between the business side and the editorial side, obviously for for good reason, uh, for brand reasons, for conflict of interest reasons. So it's it's definitely a major moment. You don't, you know, you take that decision very seriously. Um, I don't think I've ever struggled so much making a decision. I walked around the park probably a couple of thousand what, times. What were the concerns that you were giving up journalism or you weren't yeah, cut out for? I loved it, and you know, I was I had a great team and a great story. I was covering in charge of our Asia coverage at a time when. Asia was um, developing in so many fascinating ways. That was when China was really on the march. And, right. you know, we had a fantastic team and it was going well, growing well. I enjoyed it. Um, but, um, and I've had this conversation with many people. It's when, you know, making that decision about making a major change. It's very, very hard. And you're sort of tempted to think that what you're doing will remain that way forever. It never does. And particularly once you've had these big choices placed in front of you, the status quo as it was is never the status quo as it will be. And I also felt a responsibility. I thought that you know they, these those were tough times for the FT on a business front. You know our platform was beginning to catch fire um, in terms of the PNL advertising was structurally in decline. We didn't have a dynamic uh, digital model that we have today. So stuff needed doing. So my biggest fear was, well, would I be able to do it? And as an ex-journalist, how do your um, now managing journalists, how do you find they view you? Do they view you as sort of one of them made good or do they see you as a little bit of a <laughs> poacher turned gamekeeper? I think they're both actually. Really? Um, okay. no, I think journalists are rightly paid to be challenging. That's what we hire them for. And they will ask challenging questions and, and definitely do. I'm sure David has the same experience. It's a uniquely difficult setup, but it's healthy. I mean, I think that, that if we're going to ask the world difficult questions, which is our job, then we should be prepared to receive those difficult questions. But having made that decision to cross the bridge, I kind of gulped. I think the first year or two were extremely difficult, much harder than I'd expected. I had no formal, probably shouldn't say this, but I had no formal business training at all. Right. And also what you did realise very abruptly was if you're an FT journalist, you are treated worldwide with tremendous respect. Doors swing open, people make time. If you are trying to um, sell advertising or be in charge of the sales of advertising or subscriptions, it's like, well, there's the queue and we'll see whether anyone's available to see you. And it's a very different... Um, I must get uh, David's sort of take mindset. on that because you had, a more com you had a more commercial route into the top seat, so you're probably a bit more used to dealing with advertisers and brands than perhaps uh, John was as part yeah, of your job. I mean, I think there's a sort of a personal part from where I came from. I, I worked in advertising agencies, St. Luke's, a wonderful agency in the late 90s, and Ogilvy and Mather, and set up a production company 
uh, with Elizabeth Murdoch. So I had always, one, I'd always been on the business side, and two, I'd become very familiar and oddly enjoy the intersection between business and creativity. You wouldn't work in those organisations if you didn't. Uh, however, and then obviously a marketing role, which I think some people always see the marketing bit as the, uh, they, they're the people that do the ads, whereas actually marketing increasingly is a very sophisticated craft. You need to understand insights and data and audience. Um, you, you, I think it sets you up incredibly well to run businesses. You have to have a, a fundamental understanding about people, which is what CEOs ultimately are about leading. And, and I think all of that cumulative experience uh, led me to very much wanting the job I've got now. Uh, however, as John so eloquently describes, his first two years were tough. I would absolutely concur with that. It is extraordinarily difficult to uh, sort of suddenly have the responsibility. You have your business card that says CEO, which is utterly meaningless. Uh, and then suddenly you, know, you don't become a leader just because you get given that job title. You have to sort of earn it. And when you're earning it through change and when you're earning it through the glaring spotlight of your external st stakeholders holding you to account. And then every month where I very naively said, I promise you I will commit to giving a staff update to editorial and everyone else every month on our numbers, good or bad, um, you're suddenly into into some pretty terrifying meetings. And I remember being, you know, I was at ITV for five years, which is as a PLC, every time you met a Guardian journalist, you would probably go in with two comms people just to sort of get you through it. <laughs> and I have to stand up in several hundred every month. And, you know, they are, as John says, they are there to challenge you. They're there to particularly hold people um, who've got CEO job titles to account. And there is absolutely no sparing of that intensity, <laughs> regardless of who I work for. And I, I, I actually feel, um, and I, you know, ego very, very much in check. There's, there's no arrogance here. But what Kath and I and this wider team have done, Kath Viner, yeah, yeah, Kath Viner, our editor in chief, it's very much a partnership. How do you find, <laughs> to, to, to John's point and background, um, not being a journalist yourself, how does that affect your relationship with the journalists you're managing? Yeah, I mean, look, first of all, I don't manage them. I mean, Kath Viner manages right, them. Fair. I mean, I, I have to try and make the numbers add up, but there's a big distinction between my responsibility, which is to get the business to be sustainable and to fund as many journalists as, journalists as we can afford, but it's her absolute job to, to work out where that money's deployed, how many journalists and what they do. Um, however, what you do see in journalists is a um, care, passion, obsessive... Um, scrutiny and craft and what they do they're also being buffeted by change uh they you know they, at one point i'm supposed to exaggerate to make the point there was a time there was just sort of newspaper and a finite amount of, of hours in the day pagination controls or go home at whatever six o'clock and it would all be done and now i one time sometimes i do care about the well-being of our journalists because it's always on uh, there is never it's never going to stop and particularly with the big stories, Cambridge Analytica, Windrush, Paradise Papers, just to name a few, these stories are global in nature, require a huge amount, amount of judgment. I look at the fatigue that these individuals go through and you, know, you have to get into the mindset of, of caring about them as individuals as well as employees. You're listening to the Dog and Bone podcast from Propeller Group. If you're enjoying it, please share the link with your network. Subscribe on iTunes or your normal podcast provider. And if you're feeling really inspired, please write a review to help us zoom up the charts. Now, back to the conversation. 
You mentioned the mindset. I don't know if you picked up a comment John made on another podcast where he said he thought it'd be impossible to run a major media organisation without having a journalist background. Presumably, um, don't share that view. Uh, of, well, obviously not. Or with all due respect, will thank me for that. Yes, comment. yes. Uh, um, no, I, look, I, I think that uh, I think it come. I think look, you can only run any creative organisation by having a, a profound interest and respect and um, admiration for for it. And if you've come through the business side. Uh, I don't see that why that should suggest you're not into those sorts of things. I just think on that point of um, the way it's changed, I think probably it's difficult um, from outside the industry to appreciate just how much change has happened. And, and David's right. You know, when I was a reporter, um, it was frankly just mean just for the print edition, really. And we had a couple of deadlines and uh, we had a lot of time to get out, talk, do interviews. Now it's obviously print, it's online, it's um, video, it's podcasts, it's conferences, it's events, and it's 24-7 pretty much. Well, it is 24-7 actually. So the pressure and productivity dimension and the transformation, not just in the business model, but in the processes that are behind that, um, I, I suspect there's few industries that have seen such profound upheaval. Um, and the pressures that puts on people and organizations and the fact that they're doing anyhow a high pressure uh, story, you know, asking difficult questions and frequently being in difficult places is uh, a big change. And also that bar of, I mean, in the end, you're judged ultimately by the factual quality of what you're producing, which has to add up to, to never undermining the position of trust. And you only lose your trust once. Yeah. And so I think that pressure, when you have basically got real-time journalism where you can just, at a touch of a button, a few characters on Twitter can undermine both the credibility of the journalist as well as the title, means there's, there's a, you have to almost, in a, in a sea of constant change and 24-hour delivery, attempt to, and this is thankfully Kath Viner's job rather than mine, <laughs> to try and slow that down almost to ensure that you're actually writing stories and not rather than just wildly commenting because the devices and the technology allows you to right. do that. Yeah. I'd quite like to talk a little bit more about the commercial aspects of your role because on this podcast we do explore media and uh, advertising and marketing and so on. So in terms of uh, reliance on um, so-called content marketing, I know, John, you've made recent announcements um, with with an end-to-end strategy and you've got an in-house agency now, I believe, here at the FT. Um Talk to me about how important that is in your in your business model and uh, the sort of ratios you get from that kind of revenue. Well, the big change is that if you rewind, I guess, 10 years or so, 70% uh, plus of our revenues were advertising um, and almost exclusively print. And now it's completely turned on its head. Two-thirds or getting off 70% of our revenues are sort of digital and content. So that's crucial given what we were talking about earlier in terms of the um, volatility, <laughs> complete lack of dependability of advertising revenue. Um, but I think even within advertising, um, there's been some really important um, shifts. I think you know a, a lot of publishers thought, and based entire business models actually, on the idea that there'd be scaled digital advertising, that these platforms, the giants, Facebook, um, bigger than Christianity, would enable brands to reach billions of people um, in a way they couldn't before and there's going to be this you know okay print advertising was struggling but there'd be this big cavalry of digital advertising unfortunately <laughs> they hadn't really figured on that yes there'd be a big rise in digital advertising but it was all going to go to google and facebook pretty much um so the sort of straightforward as it were um vanilla 
commodity digital advertising is over. Um, so, but that doesn't mean there isn't dynamic life in forms of digital advertising and branded content um, and other areas. I think are proving themselves to be very dynamic. But it does mean, um, particularly for for brands uh, like the FT and the Guardian, I'd say that you know we're all about brand integrity, and you know it's a trust. It's the trust element of the of the brand. If there's you know one thing that cuts through everything, it's about the FT, it's editorial integrity and independence. And you can damage that quite quickly if you're not careful around the integrity of um, branded content, etc. So we took a long time thinking about the rules of engagement um, and are very clear so FT journalists don't produce this stuff, but done right, actually. It's really um, an interesting proposition. You work very closely with um, thoughtful businesses. You you think through the marketing challenge, you do research around that. So we've created a combination of, we've made acquisitions in the space of research, articulation principally through through video with a wonderful business called Alpha Grid and our sales and marketing team. And we're seeing very good growth there. What are, You mentioned the rules of engagement. What are some of the, the, the pratfalls when you're uh, making a major content piece for an international bank or corporate? What if the, the journalists are writing about them and expose it at the same time? How does that work? Well, that can work badly. <laughs> I think before well, your finances or their uh, reputation. Well, it can work for, well for the brand, but our our brand comes first. Whatever the independence of our journalism, where, where, whatever format it is, wherever market it is, whether it's China or else, we will never do anything that compromises. And if we are running a front page story, which um, is negative about a commercial partner and they don't like it, then that's their problem. So that is different to some media organisations where you hear stories about, I don't know, I heard one about film review being given an extra star because there was an eight-page supplement um, in the paper for the same film. Sadly watch. the case. Um, well, and I mean, corporate what's suicide. your view on that, David? Uh, just corporate suicide. I mean, you just don't and you shouldn't. And the idea that what we're talking about sort of quarterly targets, if someone was going to compromise 130 years or nearly 200 years, um, you compromise your trust to hit a number within a, a given year, it's just madness. And you make you're heading to a break-even point, so that's a that's a zero. So there's a, there's 150 grand kicking around to get you over there, but you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't compromise no, at all. No, and look, I mean we've we've got like like our revenue is you know it's more digital than it is print, and it's more focused on on reader revenue than advertising. However, advertising is really really important, and we've got a division called Guardian Labs, which yeah. we launched in. Um, 2014 I think and that was in response to clients sort of saying look we we don't want to keep sort of just shouting at our potential consumers can we use the craft of of storytelling video production audio production can we use the craft of that and try and create engaging campaigns to encourage just engagement between brand yeah, I've seen the and brand and consumer and obviously when we talk to clients we're not compromising editorial integrity but we are promising a consistent level of output and quality and thoughtfulness and so far uh, I mean the trouble with all advertising it tries to commoditize itself so inevitably a, a media agency might come along and say well you know that wonderful campaign can we sort of have a hundred and do a deal uh, and we don't do that what we say is that we most of the Guardian Labs content is as a result of collaborating very closely with clients directly which is helpful and working with um, right-minded agencies and we've produced some some great work but as, as John said, you, you never compromise your integrity. Do your um, editorial journalists work on the content side and the lab side, or is there a separation, no, as John no, said? No, the, the same, absolutely the same division, you know, very clearly labelled. Um, you know, we always put Guardian 
uh, labs um, uh, labeling on, on everything. Um, but actually, we have produced some great work. When we do an all hands at the end of a month, we will obviously show some great journalistic output as well as celebrate some of the things that come out of Guardian's lab. So it's not like a grubby secret. It's a significant part of our business. We win we win awards, uh, clients value what we do, and, and we celebrate that. And although right. though to, range it, to raise it as a risk, and I, I've seen examples, yeah. and I'm sure David's seen examples of where the lines have been horribly blurred, I think it feeds into this um, erosion or corrosion of trust, which is a crisis, actually, for the news media industry. So on the one hand, we can and do benefit from that um, you know, clear commitment to independence and integrity, but there's a bigger picture out there, which is the world of news, and it's deeply troubling for people involved in that world to see the way people have dialed down the trust and engagement. I'd like to talk a little bit more about your, your sort of management styles, your management routes, because you've both had to make some pretty big decisions. Um, John, when you're, when you're driving through a decision, do you see it as it's, um, are you leading from the top, or is your style more collegiate? Um, how much do you refer to the people around you before coming to coming to a big decision so you know I think um, it's very hard and to make decisions solely from the top and I think it's very important to consult and to get um, you know as much feedback as you can into a whole range of decisions and we have a pretty you know one of the cult the culture of any news organization is to be pretty challenging all the way through the ranks and people will make their um, opinions known and clear, equally you need to go out and, and try and find them and and, and get um, get input. But some decisions are, are really tough and do require ultimately, um, you know, you to make a call. And, you know... What's I think, the toughest one you've had to make recently? Well, the ones... We're, we're always... I mean, the one I was thinking of actually goes a bit further back, which is just as a basic pricing decisions. And I remember, and this was in my early days, and... You know that it was clear that the FT was struggling actually on on the business front. Um, we hadn't put the price up for five years, uh, so in real terms it had gone down. So I thought one of the things we should do, if we really believe in the quality of our journalism, is to to put the price up. And <laughs> most of the resistance I got to that was internal. I got some pretty angry letters um, or emails from the newsroom um, saying, you know, I remember one in particular said, "Dear John." what do you think you're doing? Um, or do you know what you're doing? Or do you know what you're doing? I.e. you don't know what you're doing. Um, uh, you know, if you put up the, the price, we'll lose circulation, advertising will fall, and the FT will be weaker. <laughs> Thanks. Had really thought that through. Yeah, <laughs> <helpful>. <laughs> In the end, actually, I think we got... And uh, I did... With consultation, this is an example, because I wanted to go straight from a pound to a pound fifty, um, because I believed that we were worth it. Um, that's the cover price of the regular. That, that's what it was then. Yeah. yeah, it's a little bit more than that now. Um, so, um, and I remember getting tremendous anxiety around all the sort of leadership groups of the FT. So I compromised it. I said, "Well, we'll go to a one thirty, and if the world doesn't end, then we'll work up to pound fifty. And um, I think I got eight letters complaining. Um, from outside, obviously. I replied to all of those and explained that actually quality journalism was worth um, paying for and that it was less than a, I think it was less than a double espresso from Starbucks at the time and obviously a lot better and a lot more complicated. That always fascinates me, the relative <laughs> price of a very good news package to a, to a coffee. I always get my coffee from Monmouth in uh, Borough Market and I love their pricing strategy, which is every now and again to put it up and they have these big queues and 
excellent coffee. The queue never changes because people love it. It's a must-have in yeah. the same way that the FT is a must-have. Really. It's a good way of setting your pricing but, strategy. Uh, yeah. Follow Monmouth, Monmouth <laughs> coffee, coffee, and the more expensive they are, the we've got a little bit ahead of them. Actually, now, <laughs> okay. but, um, still worth it. But I think it's the point to your question is. You ultimately have to understand the considerations and concerns within the organization, but there will be decisions where there isn't a consensus. And then, and also where you can't really do research, because if you go around and ask people, um, and that was the other thing, let's consult, let's go out and ask people what they think about the pricing. If you go out and ask people, would you like the FT to be a pound or a pound 50? I think you know what they're gonna say. And so it's, it's very difficult to do precise modeling around things like that. And ultimately, my gut said we're worth a significant price increase. Right. What's your take on that, David? In terms yeah, of I mean, I think um, I, I mean I, I do read a lot of books uh, and try and sort of just get guidance. And you consult, and you've got mentors, and you've got people who think they're mentors and they're not. They're just sort of trying to give you advice. Um, I, I think in the end, I think leadership is about being quite adaptive, actually. And I think sometimes you've got to be collegiate and and consult, and sometimes ultimately you can be paid to be a dictator, and you've just got to make that decision. Another thing, other terms I've used about sort of leading from the front, middle and back, there are times in meetings where it is appropriate you should just shut up, actually. Uh, the, the garden is, I promise you, is filled with much smarter people than me. And sometimes I've felt this is going to a great decision and I have not contributed to this at all and just let the conversation go. And then the middle, you're trying to extract um, points of view out of people. I've got an amazing team and they've all bring something different to the party. But then ultimately you are demanded and required to make decisions. And over the last three years, again, Kath Viner and I have found ourselves in meetings having to make a lot of them, you know, from um, the Berliner to tabloids yeah. would be one. Um, reducing our staff in the US by half was another. Uh, closing down our membership building, though it didn't, hadn't actually opened, but it was an initiative we had to close down. Um, nearly 480 people have had to leave our business. Um, that's, you know. How do you find that in The Guardian particularly? Because in the page of The Guardian, corporates will be held account for job losses. If Yeah, I mean, look, it's legitimate. tough. It's tough. And uh, in the end, if you're going to take this role and you've got to own these decisions, and regardless of how much ultimately you've garnered people's opinion, it's, it's, it's you who has to stand up and and make those announcements and just frankly get on with it. Um, I think going back to the original point that John was saying about having a, a, a big goal to go for, our break-even goal has been a set at some very, very strict financial guardrails to operate within. And sort of, you know, did I think we'd come close to this in 2015 with what was happening externally as well as our cost base? You know, not really. Um, but then in the end, you, you, you've got to lead and you've got to make the tough decisions. And I have found myself sometimes looking at the bigger decision. It's really interesting how leadership paralysis sets in, where the instinct is, well, let's just commission more research or let's <laughs> let's go around the table again. Yeah. And, and the enormity of the decision seems to be taking longer and longer. And actually, by not making the decision, what you were trying to solve is just got that much more complicated it springs to mind yeah and so i think i <laughs> i mean i think if you were to ask my team i'm not suggesting there'll be any compliments but i i am very candid i'm very open very very honest and i really don't mind making a decision you take your decisions quickly and yeah well not not in a no i mean to sit, that sounds just sort of reckless it's not that i think it's more about just when when being asked to make a decision i think that's ultimately your job and um i've got i'm also a big fan of you do by doing is we can sit there with all this analysis and then the other point is like our contributions model, well, why don't you just do it? 
and stop talking about it or you know why don't we you know launch a daily podcast or you know we've made this big decision about the Berliner to tabloid and obviously having to close down factories and unfortunately make people redundant but we've done the analysis let's just do it and there's two points actually that David makes there that resonate one is it has become a lot more complex as an industry with a lot more expertise and technologies and so frankly some of the big decisions I make are just hiring people who know way more than I will mm. um, particularly in tech because you know news media has become very tech heavy and I'm not a technologist and I'm aware of my limitations um, so you have to just hire really good people and trust them um, to get on with it and the second point is I think that fundamentally this business has changed from the days where um, you know, church and state, whichever, I'm never sure which was which, but you had the business side and you had the content side. And in a sense, life was simpler then. Um, nowadays, successful media organizations have much closer integration between the content and the business, still respecting, clearly, editorial integrity and independence. But for example, Lionel and I, Lionel's the editor, spend a lot of time talking about um, new um, products and services, you know, um, whether it's a specialist M&A coverage or um, technology coverage because clearly you know he has the editorial machine insight judgment um, we need to make that work um, as a business so necessarily that partnership between um, the CEO and the editor uh, has, you know, has to be very tight because um, it's right for the organization but it's also incredibly important for the business in terms of what we do and the services and products we do, then there absolutely has to be very joined up between business and editorial. Right, okay. I think when we were chatting once before, you were talking about the challenge of uh, diversifying the workforce as well, because there aren't that many quality jobs in journalism around at the moment. And if your profile of your staff is a, is a you know, certain way, maybe male, white, middle-aged and so on, and you want to change that, it's quite hard to find the, the bandwidth to... Um, to hire to, to fit that brief. How do you f find that challenge at the moment? It's it's important and it is difficult. We have um, people stay at the FT a long time. So the sort of natural attrition isn't particularly high. Um, and obviously our industry is a tough neighborhood and while we do recruit um, and do invest in recruitment, um, it's not like we have millions of pounds to spend on bringing new people in every year. So you're working with a sort of constrained universe and you are wanting to drive change because we're a global organization, we believe in diversity, not because we want to tick boxes, but we believe that a more diverse organization leads to better decisions. And I think that actually something we believe it's also true and has proven to be true. How do you do it if you don't have much turnover yeah. is, is hard, you have to be disciplined about it. You have to, for example, make sure uh, there's an awareness issue, there's a mindset issue, there's a training issue, but frankly there are some, again, some rules that you need to implement. We will, we, we want to make sure that a shortlist for any job has uh, a woman candidate. So all um, positions that we fill must have a woman candidate on the shortlist. We must have made the effort to make sure that there's a woman there because we have work to do in gender diversity. And that will, will broaden out. But yeah, and I, I think more broadly, I think that uh, you know, when we were all asked to interrogate through gender pay, I really welcome that. I mean, it was a very, very difficult period, I think, for lots of organisations to go through quite a lot of soul searching. And I love the analytical approach. Mm. You know, it was very, very clear. And, you know, the numbers that came out of The Guardian once we did those initial 
um, sort of analysis was not good enough. And, and how did and, you do? What was your well? I, th I think well, we. I mean, I think we, we we it was you know we had lack of representation in almost all four court call tiles, uh, which I think was incredibly sobering. That mm. was the bit that I was. Really, really, really disappointed by it. We set out some very bold goals of what we want to achieve over the next four or five years. And the trouble is, it's not like making a pricing decision or uh, a decision on a certain department. This this is cultural mm. and it's, it takes an awful long time. Um, and then I think, again, on diversity, it's not going to happen by accident. I think you've got to set up, we've got a, a diversity and inclusion forum now. There's a whole right. raft of things that... Uh, I think when everyone is busy and you're trying to sort of focus on a corporate outcome, wrongly people have left some of this sort of the, right. at the bottom of the to-do list and it's just not good enough. Final quick question we always ask uh, on the dog and bone. Um, like to know what's your most awkward or embarrassing business moment as a, to end a slightly perhaps on a lighter note that's assuming you've got over it by now so John can I start with you this is an, a, a business that's prone to lots and lots of awkward moments it's a contact sport for a start um, but one that has always stuck with me takes me back to my days uh, in Asia when I was um, sort of moderating a very big uh, conference um, and very very senior conference and uh uh, there's a rule, I guess, that you know, don't work with uh, children, animals, and I think it's another rule is don't work with live um, feeds into major conferences, uh. because I was on stage with a pretty challenging panel and quite a serious audience, and we were having, um, I was interviewing someone uh, from by, by satellite, um, which is always a bit, frankly, uh, risky, but it was particularly risky in this instance because the satellite went down. Um, unfortunately, the audio didn't go down. <laughs> I then had to endure um, several minutes of this very senior person berating everybody in the auditorium and berating the whole conference in quite colourful language. And I was signalling in my best sign language, because this was in a, uh, in a foreign country, um, to get, <laughs> get the audio cut. So it was a cold sweat moment. Yes. David, what's uh, your my, I think mine was, I was going to discard this so many. I, I think probably more, <laughs> when I was, I think this is not related to The Guardian, it was probably when I was at St. Luke's and one of our largest clients at the time was Sky. Uh, and the said uh, the most senior client at the time was Tony Ball. I don't know if anyone oh, knows yeah. what Tony Ball was like, but he was a pretty powerful and frank chief executive. And we were down to basically present to him the final cut of this very significant uh, Sky Sports campaign. And it was at the time when things couldn't be sent online. And so we were just simply waiting for a poor account executive to bring the tape on the back of his motorbike to present to Tony and the board. Uh, I was waiting in reception. He then phoned me and I said, where are you? And he said, the tape has just fallen off the back of the bike and a bus has just gone over it. <laughs> uh, to which time I had to go upstairs and, if, and say to Tony Ward, he said, where is, and I won't put the word that he said, oh, really? uh, and I said, it is covered all across the West Wales in Chiswick. And that was that. I still, as I say it now, I don't know if you can see it, the, the shaking of my voice, utterly terrifying. And his reaction? I, I wouldn't not, even go not, anywhere. Not this is an adult, <laughs> this is an adult I, show. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't even tell you. Oh, on that note, David, John, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on The Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog. Or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog. .dog.